The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the previous episodes, we began to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. Our goal was and is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can biblically define and understand various words and terms commonly used regarding death, hell, and the afterlife, which oftentimes cause some confusion. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality to provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future for those who would by His grace be called to do so. In the previous episodes, we identified 14 terms for definition and discussion. At this point, we have largely defined and discussed the first four terms including death, the intermediate state, sleep, and the grave. 
In this episode, we continue with questions, definitions, and discussion regarding the remaining 10 terms, including Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, Paradise, Abraham's Bosom, Hell, Purgatory, Lake of Fire, and Heaven. With this in mind, let's return to our vocabulary and terminology list and proceed to define the following terms according to a proper biblical world and life view. Number 5. Sheol As stated in the previous episode, the word Sheol originates from the Hebrew and gets translated variously as Sheol, Hell, Grave, Pit, and Underworld some 65 times. In this case, in order to understand the intent of the writers of the Bible, and indeed God himself who inspired the writers, we need to look at the context of the various uses of the word Sheol. What are the consistencies, if any? What are the exceptions? What was the cultural understanding of the writers and their respective audiences? Reviewing these aspects of the usage of the word Sheol should likely give us a better understanding of its meaning. For example, let's consider a summarized look at the comparisons between the Hebrew word Kibir and the Hebrew word Sheol, both of which get translated as quote-unquote grave. A. The word Sheol is never used in plural form. Kibir is used in the plural 29 times. This would tend to support the idea that Sheol is a specific place, whereas Kibir, which is simply a common grave, can be anywhere, and there can be multiple of them since they are not a specific place. B. It is never said that the physical body goes to Sheol. Kavir speaks of the physical body going there 37 times. C. Sheol is never said to be located on the face of the earth. Kavir is mentioned 32 times as being located on the earth. D. An individual's Sheol is never mentioned in the Bible, whereas an individual's Kibir is mentioned five times. E. Man is never said to put anyone into Sheol, whereas individuals are put into a Kibir by another man 33 times. F. Man is never said to have dug or fashioned a Sheol, whereas man is said to have dug or fashioned a Kavir six times. G. Man is never said to have touched Sheol, whereas man touches or can touch a Kavir some five times. And finally, H. It is never said that a man is able to possess a Sheol, 
whereas man is spoken of as being able to possess a kabir seven times. So, based upon the contextual differences between how Sheol and Kavir are used in Scripture, it is obvious that they are not the same thing. The use of these words helps to reinforce the differences between Kavir and Sheol, as Kavir clearly has to do with the grave as a burial place, while Sheol does not. As we continue to survey scripture, we can find numerous examples where the usage of the word Sheol clearly serves to eliminate the idea that Sheol can be equated to a mere earthly plot of land, such as a gravesite, cave, tomb, or other area where a person's physical body, i.e. a corpse, is placed upon their death. Instead, the following verses portray the idea and understanding by the writers, characters portrayed, and audiences reading that what is in view is the soul-slash-spirit of a person and the conscious status of that spirit-slash-soul within some intermediate state after the physical death of that person in question. For example... Genesis chapter 37, verses 34 and 35, quote, So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely, I will go down into Sheol unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Unquote. This passage tells us three things. One, wherever they were to be reunited, they both had to be conscious and aware, not asleep, annihilated, or inert. Two, Jacob believed that the place that they were going to meet again, in this case Sheol, was not a grave, since Joseph had no grave, since his body had been supposedly eaten and devoured. 3. Since Joseph had no body, Jacob had to be referring to their souls or spirits, which simply proves the existence of the soul-slash-spirit. Next, we have Genesis chapter 49, verse 33. Quote, When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Unquote. Here, after Jacob and his sons were reunited with Joseph in Egypt, Jacob finally dies. Note the phrase saying, 
quote, Jacob was gathered to his people, unquote. The word gathered means, quote, to gather, to collect, to receive, to be brought into association with others, or to be gathered to one's fathers, unquote. The word, quote, people, unquote, means, quote, people, relatives, kindreds, kindred, or compatriots, unquote. These words together have the clear cultural understanding referencing that someone having physically died has now joined a collective congregation of those who have died before them in some intermediate state where they can be said to be joined together. In this case, we are talking about Jacob who died and was gathered to his people in verse 33 of chapter 49. As we continue reading in chapter 50, immediately following Jacob dying, the remaining account provides a great deal of information which clarifies whether the, quote, gathering to his people, unquote, is referring to Jacob's physical body or his soul slash spirit. Firstly, after Jacob died, Joseph had his body mummified, a process which took 40 days, as noted in Genesis chapter 50, verse 3. After the embalming, the Egyptians spent another 70 days weeping for Jacob. Again, Genesis chapter 50, verse 3. Next, Joseph and a great company took Jacob's body back to Canaan for his burial. Genesis chapter 50, verse 5. The approximate distance from Egypt to Canaan is 430 miles, which would take anywhere from 7 to 9 days to travel via horse. Upon arrival, Joseph mourned his father, Jacob, a further 7 days. Genesis chapter 50, verse 10. So, all total, it was 126 days, or four months from the time Jacob actually died until Jacob's physical body was buried. This shows that at the time of Jacob's physical death, when he yielded up the spirit, his soul-slash-spirit, immediately departed his body to be, quote, gathered together, unquote, with Isaac and Abraham. This cannot be a reference to his body being, quote unquote, gathered together with their bodies, as that did not take place for over 12 weeks. This is strong proof that Sheol does not mean a burial place for the body, but is in fact a place where the souls of the departed reside. Next we have Isaiah chapter 14 verses 4 through 20. Here in these passages we find the prophet Isaiah foretelling the eventual defeat and death of the king of Babylon. Isaiah prophesies that the nation would eventually send Judah into captivity and will itself be defeated and its mighty king will find himself among quote the chief ones of the earth the kings of the nation, unquote, i.e. verse 9, who preceded him in death. 
These are the kings of the nations that he had conquered with a sword and ruled over with a cruel hand. In verse 6, Isaiah portrays those who have previously died as a welcoming committee to Babylon's once great world ruler when he arrives in Sheol. Isaiah further reveals dialogue from the dead in Sheol, conversing with the deceased king of Babylon, asking him, quote, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Unquote, in verse 10. The dead in Sheol proceed to mock the deceased Babylonian king by reminding him of his boastful display of arrogance that he had demonstrated while alive as the king of Babylon, which now means nothing in verse 11. The point of this discourse thus far makes it clear that the king of Babylon is seen joining and discoursing with others in Sheol who are themselves deceased. However, as we proceed in the following verses, we read, quote, But thou art cast alive of the grave, Kibir, like an abominable, i.e. despised, branch. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, verses 19 through 20. So we learn that the king of Babylon is going into Sheol, while at the same time his body is cast out of its grave. The conclusion then is that Sheol cannot be the same as the grave here as the king's body and soul are in different places, his soul going to Sheol, while his body remains unburied or outside of the grave, in verse 20, to be infested by maggots, in verse 11. Now, some may protest by saying that this is a prophetic passage or that the quote-unquote king in view is referring to Satan, the power behind the Gentile kings. But regardless of who this prophecy is about or whether it has already been fulfilled or not does not change the fact that Sheol and the grave are to be regarded as different places in the passage of scripture. Next, we need to segue historically to the Septuagint. In this case, about 250 BC, King Ptolemy II commissioned the royal librarian, Demetrius of Phaleron, to collect by purchase or by copying all the books in the world. He wrote a letter to Eleazar, the high priest at Jerusalem, requesting six elders of each tribe, in total 72 men of exemplary life and learned in the Torah, to translate it into Greek. This means that 70 Jewish experts in the Torah, as well as the Hebrew and Greek, worked on translating the Torah, i.e. the first five books of the Bible, and others from Hebrew into Greek. Thus, going forward, as we begin to discuss and study the New Testament and its use of Greek and the meanings of both languages, it is insightful to study the Septuagint to see what Greek words they use to translate their Hebrew counterparts. For example, 
when we survey the Torah where the word Sheol is used and compare that to how the Septuagint translates this word into Greek, we find that the Septuagint never translates the Hebrew word Sheol as the Greek word Mimma, which as we saw in episode 4 means memorial, monument, sepulcher, or tomb. Instead, in every case where the Torah uses the word Sheol, the Septuagint translates this with the Greek word Hades, which we will be studying as our next vocabulary term. Likewise, the Hebrew word Kivir, which we saw in episode 4, means grave, sepulcher, burial place, translates this with the Greek word Mima 36 times, and the Greek word Taphos, meaning burial, sepulcher, tomb, grave, 45 times. However, Kivir is never translated as Hades. This again shows that the Septuagint scholars understood as well as their audience that there was a difference between a grave or a tomb where a person's physical body was placed and Sheol slash Hades where a person's soul slash spirit went in the intermediate state. Having said this, we should point out that a further survey of the following resources provide us with some great insight into the consistent biblical view of the word Sheol and its Judeo-Christian understanding. For example, Genesius, one of the greatest Hebrew scholars who ever lived, defined Sheol as, quote, the underworld, whither man descends at death, unquote. Sheol is translated to its root, Sheol, which means the spirit world, to which mediums directed their questions to the departed, or Sheol, which, which refers to the hollow place in the earth where the souls of men went at death. Langenstein's Hebrew slash English dictionary to the Old Testament defines Sheol as, quote, netherworld, realm of the dead, Hades, unquote. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines Sheol as, quote, the unseen world, the state or abode of the dead, unquote. Kiel and Gleisch state that, quote, Sheol denotes the place where departed souls are gathered after death, unquote. Further, modern Hebrew scholars are confident in their assertion that Israel began its history record with a deeply held belief in the endurance of the soul-slash-spirit in conscious life in the intermediate state after physical death. Further, the Bible's writers, such as Job chapter 10 verses 21 and 22 and Psalm 143 verse 3 as well as Jewish culture view Sheol as a shadowy place or place of darkness. It is viewed as being quote down and beneath the earth unquote or in quote the lower parts of the earth unquote. Now Mr. Ash 
the atheist, skeptic, and humanist will protest with straw man arguments that these references to Sheol are literal viewpoints which only serve to point out the absurd mythological cartoonish idea of some physical jail cell or geographical location in the bowels of the earth, which we all know via modern geology science is an impossible fancy of imagination. Therefore, Sheol and eventually all of Scripture and God himself are mythological. However, we may also allow for the reality that the writers of the Bible were simply using the only vocabulary and imagery which their finite minds possessed in order to describe realities which exist within a more infinite and or spiritual framework. Simply put, these figures of speech merely indicate that Sheol is not a part of this world, but has an existence of its own, possibly in another dimension. In keeping with human limitations of linguistics, Sheol was routinely described and pictured within Jewish, rabbinic, and Christian literature as having two separate compartments or dimensions in both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, we see Jesus himself ratifying and or drawing upon this imagery in Luke chapter 16. Here, we see Jesus describe the rich man who went to the quote-unquote torment compartment and Lazarus, the poor man, who went to the quote-unquote comfort compartment. Jesus further describes an impassable gulf between these two compartments. Now, we can agree to the disclaimer that this is a parable given by Jesus and that parables do not necessarily have to have, as in this case, two individuals who are being described in history. But every parable must have truth as its basis or the parable would be counterproductive to teaching truth and reality, which is always the purpose behind Jesus' parables. More importantly, we must remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We may allow for any mere man to be mistaken. However, since Jesus is God, then Jesus is not going to provide erroneous information. Jesus, who is God, would be in the only position to know with certitude the reality of death, Sheol, hell, and the afterlife. Next, we have number six, Hades. Roughly speaking, around 420 to 300 BC, the Greek language and culture began to spread and dominate the Middle Eastern world with the philosophy and writings of Plato, as well as Alexander the Great's conquests. As with every other language, Greek began to displace or find equivalent synonyms to the Hebrew language of Scripture. In this case, the word Hades became the Greek translation slash equivalent of the Hebrew word Sheol. In Greek, the word Hades would appear similar in spelling to Aedes, A-I-D-E-S. 
As this word gets translated into English, the A takes on a hard H sound and becomes Hades. The Greek word Hades is a compound word of two base Greek words. The first, A, always meaning not, and Aido meaning seen or perceived. Thus, Aedes literally refers to a place which is invisible or unseen. Sometimes these Greek words are an exact mirror image in their meaning and definition to Hebrew. Other times, the differences range from slight to significant. Additionally, in many cases, the Greek words used will have their own understandings distinctive to Greek culture. With the case of Hades, although Sheol already had its cultural definitions already discussed, the Greek word Hades carried with it its cultural understandings which arise from Plato and the Greeks, who in general had an entire cosmological mythology regarding death, the afterlife, Hades, and much of the intermediate state. So, as time progressed, the Greek word Hades continued to be associated and translated for the Hebrew word Sheol. It also became natural for people to confuse, muddle, or mix aspects of the Greek mythology with God's progressive revelation of Sheol and the intermediate state. However, simply because the Septuagint and the New Testament writers used the Greek word Hades for the ease of reader understanding, does not mean that we should assume that they meant to grant license to the mythological, pagan, or fictitious aspects of the word. They may share similarities in some ways, which explains the rationale for the use of the Greek word Hades for Sheol, but the mere sharing of superficial similarities should not imply a blanket equivocation of theologies of the two. In the end, we must diligently take care that it is Scripture taken in the totality of its context which guides the ultimate authority for defining our Christian world and life view, and not Plato, Grecian, or other human philosophy which stands as the ultimate authority for defining our Christian world and life view. With this historical disclaimer and backdrop, as the Greek language began to dominate, we find the Septuagint, i.e. the Greek translation of the Old Testament, being written during the time from mid-300 B.C. to around the 2nd century. In 64 of 71 instances, the Septuagint translators used the Greek word Hades to translate the Hebrew word Sheol. Within the Septuagint, Hades is never used to translate the Hebrew word for grave, i.e. kavir. Hades is never used to indicate non-existence or unconsciousness. 
Despite the fact that the Greek word Hades carried its own distinctive understandings within the Hellenistic culture, the scholarly studied Jew of that day was able to distinguish the Greek cultural and mythological aspects of Hades from the Jewish scriptural understanding and theology of the Hebrew word Sheol. While the Greek word Hades was being used for a Greek audience, the accompanying Hebrew word Sheol was historically understood in Jewish rabbinic literature as the name of the intermediate state place where the spirit and or soul of any person went when their physical body died. As we cross over into the New Testament, the New Testament audience was a Jewish audience using the Septuagint as their scripture and the Greek as their language. Consequently, we see as the New Testament period begins, the Judeo-Christian writers began to reflect their respective understanding of God's progressive revelation. We see references to Hades, which parrot the Jewish rabbinic understanding of Sheol during the intertestamental period, i.e. Malachi to Matthew. The further progressive revelations by the New Testament writers use the Greek word Hades to give us expected clarity and insight into the understandings of Sheol and the intermediate state. Thus, during Jesus' life and before his resurrection, the Jewish understanding was that upon physical death, everyone's physical body went to the grave while everyone's spirit-slash-soul went to Sheol-slash-Hades. In Sheol-slash-Hades-slash-the-intermediate state, there were two compartments or dimensions. One was for the righteous dead, i.e. those who, like Abraham, died in faith in God. The other compartment was for those who died in unbelief and or unrighteousness or disbelief in God. Those who died in faith prior to the resurrection were, as we saw, visited by Christ and were taken out of that captivity and ascended with Christ to heaven and to the Father for their heavenly reward for their faith. However, as discussed earlier, Christ's resurrection changed the situation with the intermediate state. Post-resurrection, those who died, i.e. die, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who are unregenerate, unsaved, or faithless, have their physical body go to the grave. Upon death, that same person had or has their spirit-slash-soul go into Sheol-slash-Hades to await judgment. However, those who died or die having a relationship in Christ by faith, though they were absent in the body, that is, their physical body went or goes into the grave, their spirit-slash-soul immediately goes to be present with the Lord. For the time being, however, this will conclude this episode. Please join me for part six of this series.
Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to write me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.